Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? I forgot to put my intro, so I guess I'll just put it now. How's everybody doing? I don't know how I, I've never forgot to play my intro before. That was really terrible. Okay. I am two weeks into sickness, starting to feel better. I got my, this is, this is actually really good sparkling water. Aha. It's, I hate LaCroix, but, um, so today, after that brief aside, we will be talking about the doctrine of inseparable operations because it has come up a little bit on Twitter. If you're kind of uh, in the Protestant adjacent world, then you know that um, James White recently made a bit of a splash by comparing inseparable operations. Um, supposedly, maybe later uh, I'll pull up the clip after I do my little spiel when it comes to establishing, explaining, and defending the um, the doctrine. He seemed to compare it to Sibelianism, which is the idea that there is only a rational distinction rather than a real distinction between the hypostases and the Trinity. So this is a, uh, that was definitely, oh, what does James White said now? Oh, we'll see. You know, maybe what I'll do is in the beginning, I should play the clip. I think that'd be helpful. Yeah, I think that'd be more helpful in the beginning to play the clip. And I can kind of establish the, the opposite position. You know, we, we're live. This is uh, not pre-recorded, I promise you. Some of them are. And I think it's about 40 minutes in. I think it's about 40 minutes in. It's okay. We'll, we'll just go all the way back to like 36 minutes or something. Okay, yeah, this is, dang, he's doing a lot of streams. The catch up on James White. Did the father forsake the son? Oh, man, that was probably equally as terrible. Okay. The experience by. Okay, yeah, I think it starts at about 30 minutes. Let's just start at 30 minutes, six-minute clip. I'll put it on one and a half times speed. If you're re-watching at two times speed, um, have fun. Okay. But it, it sounds like. Oh, wait. Did I show my screen? I did. You didn't get notified about the stream? Oh, yeah. That's a reminder for everybody. According to. According to YouTube analytics, only 10% of you have your little notification bell turned on. So turn on your notification bell. That's a good reminder. Thank you, Taste. Okay, this is about to be like a five-minute clip. James White's the goat. Cringe. Not based. And I'm going to read a quote. Well, I may remember to read a quote. I don't know. A little bit later on where you're like, 
what's going on here? So the pact of the Salutis, the eternal covenant of redemption, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect harmony, John chapter 5. Oh, yeah. If you guys don't understand, the Pactum Salutis is something that comes from Reformed theology. And uh, that's the eternal uh, covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the redemption of the world, that from which all other covenants flow. So it's a very niche, actually, term. Preached on many, many times. Perfect harmony, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son does what he sees the Father doing. That doesn't make the Son an afterthought. There is perfect harmony. There's perfect harmony between all the attributes of God. There's perfect harmony in all the actions of God. But if you let the Bible be the Bible and don't let it become redefined by Aristotle, then they're really actions and they're real harmonies and they're real persons. <laughs> and there's a real presence for the son to be in who's glorified in uh, eternity past before creation itself. That's what John 17, 5 is saying. I should just mute my mic. This is painful. So back to the tweet. Personal action of the son resulting in, incar in the incarnation, clearly part of the pactum. The father never hey out on Ekenosin. The father never made himself of no reputation, never emptied himself. Right? That was only the son that did that. Right? And so I asked the question. Agreed? Question mark? No response. No response. None. And so a little bit later on, and that's what drives me nuts about these conversations. Hey, don't jump into one of my friends. Um, if you're not going to actually engage, because I'll talk about it publicly. Around the same time, a little bit afterwards. Oh, yeah, as a quick note, he definitely doesn't. I've, uh, I've had plenty of times where he broke off the thread in one of our discussions. Uh, Josh Summer posted this. Reading incarnate language, oikonomia, into the divine essence, theologia, results in the domestication and creaturefication of God. No, I have a clue. Nobody has a clue. And so I said, is this to be taken as a reply to my direct question to you? And no response from Dustin. Reading incarnate language, economia, in the divine essence, theologia, results in domestication and creaturefication of God. Well, that sounds great, but it doesn't mean a hill of beans if you're not willing to actually explain it. What do you mean? And they're afraid to do that because... The I think I can explain what Josh Summer meant. Basically, what he meant is that um, we used appropriated language because all language about um, God is analogous. So that's what he means. So, fact of the matter is, you go to Philippians chapter two, the text is clear. And if that is Theonustos, and you subject that to a system, now you know why a bunch of us are going, what happened to Sola Scriptura? There's a, there, 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 this, this isn't new to scripture. This isn't solo scripture. Stop that. It's stupid. It's stupid. We're not talking about that. We are talking about the ultimate authority of that, which is theonistos over anything else. And if you can't start your theology with the exegesis of text, get out of the business. Get out of the business. So, you know, you're, I, I'm, I'm following links around and I'm, I'm, I'm literally asking myself, I've been preaching on Philippians chapter two for decades in many churches. No one's ever come up to me and said, uh, you're violating the doctrine of divine simplicity and the inseparable operations and so on and so forth. Nobody's ever done that. Now, all of a sudden, it's the big thing. It's the big thing. And I've listened to other people preaching. I've listened to the people who are now pushing this stuff preaching. They didn't use this language only six, seven, eight years ago. And they know they didn't. They know they didn't. 
So I'm following some of this stuff around. And I come across an article. Uh, no, that's not it. I apologize because I we sort of rushed to, to do this. I don't have my other. I'm all in one screen. <laughs> Remember those days? Some of you still, still are, I suppose. Um, but um, I encountered an article in Credo Magazine from April 4th of last year, Adonis Vidu. And uh, so I'm reading through it. The title is, Why is Inseparable Operations Such a Hard Sell? You probably never even heard the term used, have you? Um, it's fascinating. I, go ahead and read it. I certainly have any problem with people um, reading this kind of stuff. You, it does fascinate me that there has to be this amazing amount of, well, let me give you some, there's a section called Expanding Our Imagination that talks about uh, Edwin Abbott's 1884 novella, Flatland, about a sphere, how a sphere would be experienced by people who live in only two dimensions. And then the second image is, is about magnetism and, and nails and stuff. And you've got to get this stuff down before you start getting the other thing, uh, the, the, the illustrations. But um, here's, here's a paragraph. Take Jesus' baptism, for example, where one hears the voice from heaven, one action. One sees the Son of God being baptized, another action. The Spirit descending upon Christ in the form of a dove, a third action. Phenomenologically, we are experiencing three separate agents doing separate things. Other aspects of our biblical experience seem to indicate something similar. All the interactions between the divine persons, whether it be Jesus praying to the Father, Christ sending the Spirit, even the various prefigurations of the Son, Daniel 7, and Spirit, Genesis 1, in the Old Testament. Were these to be taken at their face value, we would have to conclude that we have encountered separate agents of separate actions. And yet this is not the whole story. For just as Abbott's sphere propositionally reveals to the flatlander that it is not just a circle or just a voice, so Christ propositionally reveals that there isn't a separate agent beyond him. When Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father, it'll be enough for us, Jesus responds that the Father who dwells in me does his works. Hmm. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus describes his own works as being the self-same works of the Father. Now, perfect unity, John chapter 5. But you're to honor the son, even as you honor the father. You don't honor the son as the father. How, how is this different from monarchianism, modalism, surveillanceism? These are the same arguments they use. In addition to that, to Christ is ascribed the very act of creation. That's true. But even in, for example, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, 1 Corinthians 8, where the father likewise is ascribed in the action of creation, different prepositions are used to emphasize the different roles taken by the father and son. Right? In addition to that, to Christ is described the very act of creation, which is a unique and quintessentially divine act, Isaiah 44, 24, which demonstrates the deity of Christ, but it does not destroy the distinction between father and son. Or why, why not use the same prepositions then? Um, I think that's enough from him. Oh, my. Um, so so what some are going are gonna to tell you is that I'm just misunderstanding James White. Poor, poor uh, James White is actually just preaching orthodoxy. He's just using a more biblical language than I am. But it's pretty clear throughout that. Um, and, I, and I think once we start um, going over exactly what inseparable operations are, that he is going against inseparable operations. So um, first... Uh, I will kind of define terms real quick for you, what I mean by inseparable operations. And then I'll give you the theological note, which will tell you um, 
kind of the consequences for for denying this doctrine. And then I'll go into a bit of the uh, the patristic um, scriptural background and then theological reasoning for why in the world uh, we have to hold to inseparable operations. Okay, let me pull up my notes real quick. Yes, I'm being not a giga chad this time and going off of memory. I actually took notes. Okay. So. So when it comes to. Uh, I just said inseparable operations for short term, but this is actually covering two separate doctrines. One is called inseparable operations and the other is called appropriations. So with inseparable operations, inseparable operations refer to a single principle uh, of ad extra actions. So it's a single prince to the fact that any outside actions in which we perceive of the working of the Trinity all have one real principle, one real and simple principle, because the will is of the nature not of the hypostasis. So one real principle of all outward actions. It's not a um, moral community of the three persons um, focusing all of their powers in, in one outward activity, which in the beginning of that clip, that it does seem to be what uh, James White was speaking of, is a sort of uh, logical and moral community of ad extra actions, not necessarily a real simple um, principle singular principle of outward actions with uh, the inseparable operations. And then the doctrine of appropriations comes in. So what appropriations means is basically um, we predicate certain activities of the Trinity um, outwardly in our experience to one or other of the persons. So it's both, uh, both, uh, Inseparable operations and appropriations kind of go together because when um, I actually I'll get in that later. So with a theological note of this, so with the inseparable operations, this has been frequently and clearly defined. Um, this was defined well before schism. This was uh, defined as early as the seventh century. If memory is serving me right. So this is defining Catholic faith. So to deny um, inseparable operations would be heresy. But when it comes to appropriations, it's more so of a theological opinion. So um, denying it would just make you uh, dumb. It'd just make you wrong. You'd just be wrong if you denied um, appropriations. So with uh, the scriptural evidence, um, Oh, Militant Jamie's here. Hi, Militant Jamie. With the scriptural evidence behind inseparable operations. <coughs> oh, that was terrible. <clears throat> when you look th frequently through scripture, this isn't something which is actually explicit in scripture, but it's something more implicit that you can derive from scripture. You see the same operations, such as creation being... Uh, <coughs> Sorry, give me just one second.
I hate being sick. So throughout sacred scripture, when you have, uh, when you have it talk about the certain activities of the Godhead, sometimes it will speak of the same activities such as creation being of different persons. Frequently, it's the father in some places and the son in other places. So implicitly, we can derive from this the fact that there is an inseparable operation going on below the surface. Although it's not um, propositional, it's an uh, explicit, it's merely uh, implicit. And um, I guess you could say um, moral reasoning right there. Because scripture doesn't go out and say that explicitly... Um, that the working of the ad extra actions of the Godhead are actually have one real principle, simple principle in, in, the, in the Godhead. That, that's not, that's not a, what scripture does. So when we derive this theological proposition from scripture, it's going to be implicit and it's also going to be um, by consequence. So um, if you divide the persons of the Trinity, like somebody who denies um, simple operations is going to do, then you are going to contradict other principles spoken of in scripture, namely the unity of the Godhead. And you're going to ultimately fall into tritheism, which seems to be um, James White's cardinal sin is tritheism with his Trinitarian theology. So in the in the fathers, um, it's, it's extremely clear. Um, you have St. Athanasius. He says, quote, the Trinity, um, his efficacy and action are one for the father through the word in the Holy Ghost does all things. And in that way, the unity of the Trinity is preserved. And similar things are said by St. Basil, St. Gregory of Nazianzus. St. Augustine said, but in reference to creatures, the father and son and the Holy Ghost are one principle as they are one creator and one Lord. And then St. Leo the Great he actually pretty beautifully brings together both the idea of inseparable operations and appropriations. He says the blessed Trinity is one in substance, undivided in activity concerning that when scripture so speaks that either with facts or with words, it says something that seems to be applied to singular persons. Our Catholic faith is not disturbed, but rather it is taught that the truth of the Trinity is suggested to us by the quality either of word or of deed, and the intellect does not divide what the hearing distinguishes. So intellect do not divide what the hearing distinguishes. And then uh, my favorite, uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria, he says, to attribute individual operations to each separate divine person is tantamount to saying that there are three separate and distinct gods, which is exactly my argument right here, is that Dr. White, uh, James White, um, is going to inevitably fall into uh, tritheistic heresy because necessarily um, you're going to have to divide the one undivided and supremely simple essence of God. Okay, so when it comes to theological reasoning, um, first, uh, there's the principle that everything in God is one where there is no opposition of relationship. And this comes from um, Boethius is that only um, only the opposition of relationship, the for example, spiration and spirating, um, generation and uh, not not generation, uh, begetting and begetter, and I guess you could say generation and generator. Um, these these relations between the persons of the Trinity of origin and procession, 
And that opposing relationship is the only thing which is going to multiply the Trinity. Now, when it comes to add extra activities, there isn't this opposition of relationship, though. So there is no multiplication that occurs. And then the second argument is going to be from the fact that nature is the principle of action. So this is why when we speak of Christ, we say that he has two wills. Christ has two wills because he has two natures. He has two principles of actions because nature is that principle of action. So when it comes to the Trinity, because the three persons share one in common nature, then there is going to be one principle of action and therefore one principle of action because there's one nature. So I can take questions. I feel like I had something else to say. There was, oh yeah. I think at the beginning of this clip, I wanted to actually go back to the beginning of this clip. Because I think he has a very revealing statement that he actually, like, because I don't think it's unclear that what he's saying is wrong. are really comfortable with the divine persons interacting with one another, loving one another, because of this philosophical commitment that you have, then the Pactum Salutis becomes, well, it was just a thought in God's mind, it, but it was just one decision. There's, you've got this sort of Unitarian kind of concept going on. Okay, we're Sibelians and Unitarians, I get it. And it's like, wow, it sounds like what the one this guy said. It's a little bit scary. But it's true. It, it sounds like what the, and I'm going to read a quote. Well, I may remember to read a quote. I don't know. A little bit later on where you're like, what's going on here? So the Pactum Salutis, the eternal covenant of redemption, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect harmony. John chapter 5, preached on many, many times. Perfect harmony, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son does what he sees the Father doing. That doesn't make the Son an afterthought. There is perfect harmony. There's perfect harmony between all the attributes of God. There's perfect harmony in all the actions of God. But if you let the Bible be the Bible, and don't let it become redefined by Aristotle, then they're really actions and they're real harmonies. And they're exactly boom, boom. See, he just has that, that. That's what I wanted to focus on because he doesn't believe in a one real and simple uh, principle of action, but rather there's only this, uh, this moral sort of unity between three principles of action. There you go. Christian B. Wagner doesn't have a beard. He isn't a real Thomist. Well, do you know who else didn't have a beard? Every single Thomist until the 1980, uh, what is it, 1983 Code of Canon Law was established. Because clergy, um, it was, I can't remember. I think, what, what was the, there was something about shaving in like Latin Canon Law. Um, up and up until the night, maybe it was the 1917 where they got rid of it. I don't know. So it seems like he's advocating for soft inseparability rather than hard inseparability of operations. Yeah, I think that distinct, uh, that distinction would be between somebody who would have a moral unity versus a real unity. So with a moral unity, you still fall into tritheism. You just sound a lot nicer when, when you're talking about it. Um, 
where did James White earn his PhD? He, um, it was some like online university or something like that. It was about not having the blood of Christ getting in the mustache. Oh, there you go. What means this inseparable operations? The fact that the ad extra to the outside operations of God all come from um, a unified principle. So, uh, for example, and when we see a distinction, for example, we see uh, the scripture speaks of the father doing this or the son doing this or the spirit doing this, that um, those are mere appropriations. Ah, sorry, my, my sinus is the worst. Yeah, I think that's that's about it. I feel like I had so much more to say. Oh, I guess we could um, go a bit over his objections about the biblical text. So uh, this is something I've been harping on for a while. <clears throat> but I think when it comes to James White, and this is a problem I see with uh, actually with Protestants in general, um, I see this issue when it comes to the mode of exegesis. So I think this is a, a broader issue, and this is just a um, this is just a symptom of the broader issue. So when when you see that they they don't recognize the appropriation of language. So for example, um, because well, this goes back. They don't not understand the appropriation of language. It goes back to the strict reliance on a grammatico historical uh, method of reading um, and the strict reliance on the intent of the um, of, of the human author in the text so when for example scripture speaks of let's say God getting angry most following the grammatical historical method would say, okay, this is the proper um, attribution of anger to God. Just leave it at that. But rather, on the other hand, um, those with a Catholic hermeneutic are going to say, okay, this word is a sign. This word anger is a sign signifying something in reality. Um, I guess you could say angerness in reality. Okay, so let's look at the attributes of anger and the various perfections and imperfections of that. So the the various imperfections is that it's a passion, is that it um, it often comes from malice and et cetera, et cetera. You remove the imperfections which are present in this concept of anger, and then you you elevate those perfections to the level of deity. So that's the way in which you read those things. You read it metaphysically, and then you also uh, recognize because of the unity of truth um, that you can bring bring completely different ideas that aren't even present in the mind of the author in order to be able to interpret the text. So this is something completely different. So going back all the way, uh, going back uh, after that brief aside to inseparable operations, when they read certain texts, they don't recognize that because of the unity of truth, 
because James White will say that this is reading your uh, systematic, the reading your system into the text, or reading your dogmatic theology into the text, reading your conclusions to the text, eisegesis, whatever you want to say about us. Well, because of the unity of truth, when it comes to the ecclesiastical definitions, the consent of the fathers, which is strong on this one, and the um, and the results of theological reasoning, truth must be unified. And because we already know um, that when it comes to the the authors of scripture, that oftentimes it's a, they're appropriating language because they need to appropriate language when it comes to God. So when it when it comes to taking this appropriated language and then making true theological um, conclusions, um, removing the imperfections that are often present in our language, it takes some hard work. And um, because scripture itself does not have that purpose of making um, intensely defined theological propositions. That's not the purpose of sacred scripture. So um, scripture often condescends to be able to um, communicate a certain real truth that's there to people, but often it's um, it's using mixed concepts. If that if that makes if that makes sense to anybody, so when Scripture uses the term anger with God, it's communicating something true about God's justice. But if it went on this long uh, tangent of scholastic theology, for example, what you might see in a Thomas, uh, St. Thomas's treatment of anger, it's not going to be able to communicate the truth. So scripture has to appropriate that language. And it's the same way when it comes to um, inseparable operations. And I think the flatland analogy is actually pretty good. I might use that uh, in the future to describe this idea of scripture's appropriations to us. So... If you guys have any questions, I'll deal with them. If not, then I will go. Maybe I gotta... I gotta have a disputation on here about the laceity of of um gotta have a disputation on here about the laceity of stealing pdfs because it's starting to get oops i just i don't know how i accidentally left my own stream but i guess that is it so I will see you guys tomorrow with something. Oh, there you go. There's one. Do you think we see the distinction of persons in the OT? Yes, we do see the distinction of persons in the Old Testament. But it's much more obscure, if that makes sense. So, I mean, you see it throughout the prophets when they speak of the future Messiah in terms of Godhead. Um, when they speak about the spirit of the Lord in a uh, in a certain way, that seems to be um, something more than a mere force. Um, you, you get these uh, very cloudy and dark sort of uh, images when it comes to the future revelation of the Trinity. So, um, 
but that's definitely a, a difficult one. Yeah, with the with the angel of the Lord um, and the Lord in the same passage, that's another classic one used um, by the fathers um, for Christ when he quotes uh, the Psalms with David. Um, yeah, there, there's actually, it's actually, uh, I, I think in, in Hebrews, when it talks about, that's an interesting one, is Hebrews, when it's talking about the Old Testament, um, I can't remember the exact place, but it's, yeah, I can't remember the exact place where, where Hebrews is talking about that. Okay, so what's a resource to read on appropriations? Any good um, dogmatic theology should have a section on it. Um, Paul, Paul has a pretty good section, just, just going over it quick and dirty. Yeah, I think Paul's kind of, and then Hunter also has. So remember, always, I always find a way how to mention this, but Outlines of Dogmatic Theology by Hunter, uh, Militant Thomist Press. If you go to christianbwagner.com slash shop, you can get that. Or if you go to patreon.com slash militantomist and become a patron, you can request me to send you the PDF. And I would be more than happy because I typeset that whole thing. Search two powers of heaven in Judaism. Somebody was telling me about that. It was very interesting. Add extra operations are performed by all three persons. Yes. James Emery's book on the Trinity is masterful. Yes. Okay, if I don't have any more comments, then I will go. I know that's like the fourth time I've said this. Then you guys just keep asking me comments right before about to go. Targum showed the Jews believed this. Member of Yahweh was Yahweh based. Yeah, there needs to be. I, I definitely have seen those those quotes. People will send me quotes like that. Good stream, King. Thank you. I have a bit of a headache, so probably need to take some Dayquil. So sorry if I was a bit uh, a bit retarded today. I mean, that's pretty frequent, but uh, so that is all. I will see you guys later. I'm trying to figure out what what ex exit I want to do. So many good videos to do. Chef Swanson on. I've had Swanson on. He's pretty chill. Talk about his work on the papacy. I can't figure out which one I want to do. You know, I'll do the Pope Pius the Tenth one as my as my exit. Okay, I will talk to you later, Kings.